I think it's on mute. Does this work? No. Nope. Uh, ah, there we success. go. All right. I might be a little too much. There, is this better? All right. If you cannot hear me, raise your hand. No. Uh, thank you, Joan. It's very nice to be back here. This, this area, I mean, your license plates are correct. This is an enchanting place. Uh, it's just really a lot of fun to come here. And now that I know a bunch of people here, it's even more fun. Once upon a time, a long time ago, in the great city of Calcutta, there lived a young man named Mohan. He had been born into a family of street magicians, people who made their living doing card tricks, coin tricks, sleight of hand, stuff like that. Mohan, of course, that was his profession. Uh, he was pretty good at it, but he wanted to know about the real magic. And he began inquiring around, looking for the world's greatest magician. And the word seemed to be that the world's greatest magician lived in Rajasthan, on the other side of India. One day he set out to find the world's greatest magician because he was going to learn the real magic. Now the story of his travels to get to Rajasthan would entertain us for the whole evening, but I'll just cut to the point that eventually he did arrive in Rajasthan, and he arrived in the village where the world's greatest magician was said to live. And he inquired around, and it was like, oh yeah, just beyond town, the big house. You can't miss it. Two stories, got a corral full of horses out front. Well, this guy sounded pretty powerful. So Mohan went out there, and sure enough, yeah, pretty ritzy-looking place, but... He'd come all this way, so he screwed up his courage, knocked on the door, and it was opened by, obviously, a servant saying, Yes, may I help you? Mohan announced, I've come to see the world's greatest magician. Please wait here. And the door was closed. You know, and a minute or two, this little Indian man, I mean, little by Indian standards, opened the door, and he had this amazing twinkle in his eye. He said, yes, may I help you? I've come to see the world's greatest magician. Oh, you have? <laughs> come in, come in, come in. And he takes him upstairs to a parlor, a sitting room. And, you know, the usual questions ensue. You know, where are you from? Are your parents still alive? How many brothers and sisters do you have? If you've been to Asia, you know the routine. is quite a lot to get about the background. And so this goes on for several minutes. And then the magician says to Mohan, Well, why have you come all this way? I want to learn the real magic. The real magic? Oh, the real magic? Well, just at that point, the magician's wife comes into the room. She's carrying a silver tray, and on it there's a teapot and two cups. She hands one of the cups to Mohan, picks up the teapot, and begins to pour the tea into the cup. <clears throat> and just as the first bit of tea hits the bottom of the cup, there's a giant earthquake. 
I mean, we're talking 8 plus on the Richter scale. Serious earthquake. Things are falling off shelves. Bookcases are turning over. The magician jumps up and runs out of the room. The magician's wife drops the tray into Mohan's lap, runs out of the room. Mohan dumps the tray, he runs out of the room. And the building is still shaking. I mean, this is a very serious earthquake. Go running downstairs, go running outside. Everybody in the household has run to the corral and grabbed a horse and mounted up on the horse and is riding off. When Mohan gets there, there's one horse left, this big stallion. And Mohan grabs the horse, leaps on its back. Well, it wasn't so much as riding off as hanging on for dear life. This horse bolted and took off, and Mohan, who had not ridden much, was uh, in a bit over his head. But he had his arms around the horse's neck, and he's just hanging on. And the horse panics and runs, 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 runs. Mohan's got his eyes closed. He's so scared. Eventually, the horse starts to get tired, slowing down. Mohan opens his eyes, looks around. The horse finally gets into a trot, and Mohan sits up. And the horses run off into the desert. Rajasthan is a desert state, and if you're not sort of in a village or near an oasis or something, you're in the desert. It's like, this is not a good thing. He needs to get back to town. So he pushes the horse's head and gets the horse turned around. can follow the footprints back to town. No problem, right? Except about 30 seconds later, the wind starts blowing. And within two minutes, it's a sandstorm. Serious problem. But luckily, there was an outcrop of rock. And Mohan was able to guide the horse into the lee of this outcrop of rock. So they're fairly sheltered from all this blowing sand. Nothing to do but wait it out. Takes about an hour and a half. And then suddenly, just the wind is gone. Well, now there's a problem. Those uh, tracks to follow back to town, they're not there anymore. But the horse knows his way, right? Just give the horse its head, it'll follow, you know, it'll, it'll follow the path and get back to town. So the horse goes and you know, he knows that the horse ran for a while, so it's going to take a little while to get back to town at this nice slow walk, but, you know, ought to be some sign of the town soon. They keep walking. It's getting dark. No sign of the town. It's dark. There's not any lights to be seen anywhere. Mohan's in trouble. He's out in the desert with a horse that doesn't know its way home. He hasn't got a clue which direction to go in. And it's dark. Well, stopping is not such a wise thing to do, especially since tomorrow morning the sun's going to come up and it's going to be hot. Better just let the horse keep going. At one point, Mohan fell asleep and fell off the horse. Luckily, he landed in some bushes and got a little scratched up, but not badly hurt. And the horse didn't run off. He remounted the horse, managed to stay awake, but nowhere was there a light. Nothing. It was a full moon, so you know, could see where he was going. But this is pretty scary. It got even more scary when the sun came up. It's going to be pretty serious because I mean, Mohan didn't even get to drink his tea. 
And suddenly the horse pricks up its ears just after dawn, breaks into a little trot, and comes to a little stream. The horse is face down in the stream. Mohan is face down in the stream. Upstream from the horse, of course, right? Drinks all he wants. The horse eats some grass. Mohan doesn't eat grass. But, you know, this is better. And furthermore, he knows if he follows the stream, he's going to come to the civilization, right? So he starts following the stream. And uh, it's getting hot. In fact, it's getting a little too hot. I mean, he can drink the water, but it's not good for traveling. He comes across this big rocky outcropping, and he can get in the shelter of the rocks there and falls asleep. And he wakes up about sunset, and luckily the horse is still there. And he mounts up the horse. It's you know kind of dark until the almost full moon comes up. And he keeps following the stream. And the stream's getting bigger, little streams coming into it, but no sign of light, nothing. Next morning, you know, it's like, uh-oh, i got to find another place to sleep. But it's pretty flat and barren, and then, is that smoke? That might be smoke. All right. So he's heading down. And sure enough, he comes to a rickety old bridge that leads across to a homestead. There's a house with smoke coming out the chimney and a few outbuildings and some fields. And he starts across the bridge, and it's clip-clop, clip-clop, and... Pretty soon the door of the house opens and out comes an old man and an old woman and a younger woman. And they're just staring at him. And he rides up and dismounts and he sort of blurts out, you know, I caught this big earthquake and I jumped on the horse and the horse ran away and, and, and you know, I've been lost and I'm so happy to see you and, and I've been riding for two days and I'm really kind of hungry. And, and finally he stops and the old man looks at him and says, but we thought we were the only ones. Um, uh, n- n- no, uh, th- th- there's lots more. Uh, I mean, you should see Calcutta, where I come from. There's lots of people. And uh, you're not the only ones. Uh, would you happen to have any food? The old man shakes his head and says, I thought we were the only ones. Uh, no, you're not the only ones. Um, he launches in to get, try and explain how crowded India really is. When he stops, the old woman looks at him and says, We thought we were the only ones. Uh, no. Are you hungry? You want something to eat? Oh, yes, that would be really nice. Uh, if, if you have some food you could spare, that would be really nice. So Mohan puts his horse in the corral there and goes and, and it's pretty simple food, but it's pretty tasty, especially as hungry as he is. And over breakfast with this family, because it was a husband and wife and their daughter, who was about Mohan's age, the story comes out. The husband and wife had lived downstream at a place where there was a ford, and the caravans would use that ford to make their journey when they were headed off to what we know as Afghanistan. They'd come back, cross the river at that point. And the, the little village there was pretty prosperous because they'd trade stuff like food with one caravan and they'd get some good stuff and they'd trade that with the next caravan along with the food. And they had a pretty good life. 
until when this man and woman, who were children at the time, were about 12 years old. And one year, the caravans didn't come. It was caravanning season and no caravans. This went on for like a couple months and you know everybody in the town is really worried. What's happened? And finally, a single horseman comes and they're like, where are the caravans? Where are the caravans? Says, oh, they built a bridge about 50 miles downstream. Uh, all the caravans go in there now. They ain't coming here anymore. Well, this was devastating to the little community because all they had was what they could grow. Uh, but things got a lot worse. Later that year, some disease hit. Somebody be perfectly healthy when they got out of bed. Mid-morning, they have kind of a headache. Lunchtime, they'd be really sick at their stomach. By the time the sun went down, they'd be dead. It just swept through the village, killed everybody but two people. This boy and girl, they were about 12 years old. Well, they gathered together some stuff and moved upstream and had lived there basically since they were little kids. This was their daughter. And they thought they were the only ones. You know, no caravans and the disease. They figured the disease had killed everybody. They hadn't seen anyone. Mohan assured them that, no, yeah, Calcutta is just full of people. And, you know, all the other places he'd been. And, and he really appreciated their hospitality, but he needed to uh, get the horse back to the world's greatest magician and learn the real magic. Well, the old man said, you better rest up for a day. You've had quite an ordeal. You don't even know where to go. And Moha's like, well, yeah, I mean, I could go downstream. This guy, I'll run into somebody someplace. But, yeah, I am kind of tired. So he agreed, that, yeah, he'd leave the next day. And sat around with the family, slept some. It's pretty nice. Especially that night when the old man started telling stories that he'd learned from the caravans. It was pretty entertaining. And, well, they did have a very lovely daughter. And so he slept the night and got up the next morning. And the old man said, you know, before you go, it would be really helpful if we could borrow your horse to plow the fields. It's time to plow the fields. And what we've been doing is hooking me up to the plow. And my wife guides it. And... It's really hard because, you know, I'm not so strong anymore. Well, yeah, uh, Mohan could help them out, you know, get all the plowing done in a couple of days. They weren't going to need that much. and So he agreed to help. Well, to make a long story short, ten years went by. He and the daughter had a son who was six, and it was a pretty idyllic life. I mean, they... These two knew how to grow good food. The old woman was a brilliant cook, and their daughter was very lovely. And yeah, it was it was good. Until one day, the old man was walking across that rickety bridge, and he tripped, and he fell in the river, and he drowned. And his wife was inconsolable. She was crying and screaming, trying to throw herself in the river, and. Mohan and his wife are holding her back and finally they get her settled down and she cries herself to sleep. And Mohan's wife is really upset. Mohan's trying to you know, talk with her and he's you know, really putting all of his attention to her and he looks around and the old woman's not there. And they look 
And she's headed for the bridge. And they go running after her, but they're too late. She walks to the center of the bridge, throws herself in the river, and drowns. Well, at this point, Mohan's wife lost it. And she wants to throw herself in the river. And Mohan's trying to hold her back and, you know, finally drags her back into the house. And she finally cries herself to sleep. And uh, Mohan's pretty exhausted. And he's talking to his son, who's really upset. I mean, his granny and granddad are both gone. And looks up, his wife is headed for the bridge. He goes running after her, but too late. She gets to the middle of the bridge, throws herself in the river, and drowns. Mohan sinks to his knees. He's got his hands over his face. He's just like, oh. When he looks up, his son is standing in the middle of the bridge. And he screams, no! His son turns, looks at him, and before Mohan can take more than three or four steps, he throws himself in the river and drowns. Mohan staggers to the center of the bridge, looks down at the rushing water, puts one hand over his eyes, leans out, topples off the bridge, and just as his hand hits the water, the magician's wife says, there you are, sir, enjoy your tea. (laughs) Things are not what they seem to be. We get taken in pretty easily. You know, we figure it's going along like this, and it turns out it's like that. But we were all invested in it being like this, and we sometimes miss that it's actually like that. This is called an illusion, something that appears to be other than it is. You got all kinds of illusions. You got you got the illusions that street magicians do. You know, like you know, you got a quarter. Right? And you take the quarter and you say some magic words like, I don't know, abracadabra, and and it's gone. Right? Of course, it usually winds up. (laughs) Somebody's here. Right? This is a pretty good illusion itself. Right? I mean, you, you carry these things around. Why do you carry around these little circular pieces of metal? It's because you need a screwdriver from time to time? No, I know, because you've got to make a decision. You know, it's a convention. We have decided this is valuable. I mean, after all, it's got George Washington on it. How could it not be valuable, right? And on the back, oh, this one came from New York. It's got the Statue of Liberty. I mean, this one must be worth at least 30, 40 cents. But no, conventionally, even though it's got the Statue of Liberty and George Washington, it's only 25 cents. It's only worth one-fourth as much as this is. This is worth four times as much because this has got George Washington. Why is this four times as valuable as this? You can use this as a screwdriver. I mean, what are you going to use this for? Uh... You carry this stuff around in case you run out of toilet paper? (laughs) It's not any good for starting a fire. I know why you carry this stuff around. Right? Oh, no, you don't do that. (laughs) Hey, check this out. This is 20 times as valuable. Because see, it's got the grumpy Indian fighter, and this has only got the father of our country. 
Now this is bigger. See it by no, it's the same size and it's the same color. Why is it twenty times as valuable? Oh, because we wrote a twenty in the corner, right? Uh, but it's the same paper and just as useless as this is if you actually think about it. But we have come up with this convention. This is valuable stuff, much more valuable than this stuff. It's worth, people, it's an illusion. Right? We play with these illusions all the time. You want to see a real illusion? Take a look at this. <laughs> uh, talking about the little hologram on the back, I mean, that's pretty cool. But think about it. You go into a store, you get a bunch of stuff, you walk out. They get really upset. But you go into a store, you get the same stuff, you go up to the front, you give them this. Right? They're real happy. They even give it back to you. Right? They give you two pieces of paper. One of the pieces of paper, you make magic marks on it, right? You give them that piece of paper. They give you the other piece of paper for you to take home and throw away. And you get the, all that stuff, right? Nobody's got a problem. Of course, that's not the end of the story. Pretty soon, a piece of paper is going to come in the mail. And you're going to rip that piece of paper open and there's going to be a whole bunch of pieces of paper in there. Most of which you throw away without looking at it, right? But you've got to find the one piece of paper where you rip the top off of it. And you file this other piece of paper, or you shred it, or whatever, right? And you find this other piece of paper, and you stick that that you ripped off in the other piece of paper. You open your drawer, you pull out the pieces of paper you got from your bank, you make magic marks on one of them, you stick it in with the other piece of paper, seal it up, stick a piece of paper in the corner, and throw it in a metal box. <laughs> This is crazy, people. You think this is reality? Come on. It's an illusion. This is just pieces of paper floating around. But it works. We have come up with this convention. we got illusions all over the place. I mean, I bet most of you at home paid a good bit of money to have a dot box. Right? You all got dot boxes? You know, you got a 21, no, nobody has a 21 inch dot box. You got a 33 inch dot box or 55 inch dot box, you know. It's, it's really, I mean, you watch the game on it, it's just there. Right? Or you watch a soap opera. It's just dots. That's all it is. You paid all that money for a box of dots that turn colors. Right? But you can't miss your soap opera. And, you ever watch guys watching sports on a dot box? They'd be screaming at that box, Go! Go! Right? The box can't hear them. It ain't going to make anything go. But they're completely caught up in this illusion. Right? You go to the movies. What do you pay? Ten bucks, twelve bucks around here? You're paying twelve bucks for them to shine a bright light through a piece of plastic? You get to sit in a chair in the dark and go, wow, look at him shine that bright light through that piece of plastic. No, no, it, it produces this illusion on the screen. And you get all into the story, you know, and the, the ship sinks and all these people die and you cry. and They paid those people to act like that. Nobody died, right? 
you're paying to see an illusion. And in fact, if, if it's not a very good illusion and doesn't fool you, you want your money back. You want it only if it's a good illusion. There's illusions all over the place. There's a moon illusion, right? The moon comes up, it's really big. A few hours later, it's shrunk down. How does it do that? San Francisco, you can do a really good one. I used to live in San Francisco, and you'd stand at the bottom of a street, and the moon come up over a hill. Then you run up to the top of that hill, and the moon shrinks down. And you run back down to the bottom of the hill, and it got big again. How does the moon know where you are? <laughs> right? It, when you understand it's an illusion, then you're not believing the moon is changing size, even though it looks like it's changing size. We're dealing with illusions all the time. The rainbow. Y'all got good rainbows around here, right? What's a rainbow? Truth be told, there's no such thing as a rainbow. You can't go find it. I mean, if you can, you know where the pot of gold is, right? But it's not a thing. It's, well, it's sunlight behind you and raindrops in front of you at the right angle and the observer in the right place. Without the observer, there's not a rainbow. Without the sunlight or without the raindrops, there's not a rainbow. But you see it, the person standing next to you, you can say, hey, look, 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 there's a rainbow. And they see it. Well, truth is, they're seeing a different rainbow than you are. It's different drops of water making what they see. But you can talk about it. Yeah, it's almost almost all reaching the ground on both sides. And look, it's double over here. Right? It's an illusion. But it's a pretty beautiful illusion. But it's actually something that's appearing as a result of other processes that are happening. Turns out, you're just like that rainbow. This solid sense of self that you feel is also an illusion. It's not real. It feels real. I mean, there's this little guy sitting behind your eyeballs and he's looking out, right? That's you. Of course, does he have eyeballs with another little guy sitting behind them? <laughs> But this sense of there being a me inside this body is really, really strong. Uh, you hear the Buddha's teaching on anatta, and you go, not self, you go, I don't know, we'll work on that one later. Let's, let's stick to this everything changes bit. And, and the dukkha part, yeah, okay, I'll get over the dukkha, the unpleasantness, but I ain't there. No, man, it's me. But... We are also processes. Buckminster Fuller had a book entitled, It Seems I'm a Verb, right? You're not a noun. You're a bunch of processes. You got your circulatory process, you got your digestive process, you got your endocrine system, that's a process. You're much more like a verb than a noun. I mean, a noun is a thing, but you're, you're changing all the time. If you try and find that solid self, well, 
you don't want it to be your body, right? Because it's changing, and it's not changing in a really great way. <laughs> to be aging doesn't work so well, right? You want the real you to be something a little more um, trustworthy and substantial than this bit that's wearing out. So uh, maybe maybe it's your memories. Oh no, that's not too good either, right? They seem to not be quite as reliable as they used to be. Uh, you're changing out all the cells in your body every seven years and you're changing your mind a whole lot more frequently than that. You don't want to be your emotions, right? Because they're, they're coming and going. Are you just your happy emotions? Well, no. If you're your emotions, you're your sad emotions. But if it was really you, why would you have any sad emotions? Why not just get to the happy ones and go, oh, okay, I'll stay here. But no, it comes and goes. And you get sad even when you don't want to. Can't be your emotions, your thoughts. Did you ever think of something that wasn't right? Does that mean you aren't right? Hmm. Maybe you better not be your thoughts. I mean, you go inside yourself and try and pin down where's the real you. You can't find it. The Buddha talked about the five aggregates: your body, your reactions to sensory input, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, your perceptions. Do you ever misperceive something? That, that, that would mean if you were your perceptions that sometimes you weren't really right. That's not too good. And thoughts and emotions, we talked about that. Your consciousness, that's where you want to go. right? It's your consciousness. That's the real essence of you. Of course, what happens when you fall asleep and you're in dreamless sleep? You don't have any consciousness, right? Where'd you go? Does that mean you disappeared? If that's the case, how do you know which body to wake up in? What, what if every time you wake up, you're waking up in somebody else's body? You've got their memories and their problems. <laughs> I don't know about being consciousness. That might be questionable too. The actual explanation is that this solid-seeming me is just as illusory as the value of this piece of plastic. It's convention. It's useful. But it's not really there. The Buddha's strategy for dealing with dukkha, with the unpleasant aspects of life, was to figure out why does dukkha arise? Is there a necessary condition that when that condition is met, then dukkha can arise, but if that condition is not met, then dukkha won't arise. Things like, if you're not born, you don't die, right? I mean, did you ever hear of somebody that had never been born dying? No, it just doesn't happen, <laughs> right? So this dukkha that's happening, all this unpleasantness that occurs in our life, is there a necessary condition for it? And what he discovered is a necessary condition called craving. So if there's no craving, there's no dukkha. And his strategy was to gain enough insight into the nature of reality so that this sense of me, the craver, isn't being felt anymore. If you can break through the illusion of self, then there's no basis for selfish action. There's no basis for craving. And if there's no craving, there's no dukkha. That's freedom. So, the Buddha 
set about investigating this sense of self and discovered it's an illusion. But just knowing it's an illusion is not enough to let get you to the point where you don't do any craving. You need to shatter the illusion for yourself. Let's say you go to the beach. Now, I don't mean a New Mexico beach, which you seem to have lots of. I mean a beach where they got water. (laughs) Okay, so you go to the beach and you stand there, you know, your toes in the water, and you can see that the world ends six miles out, right? You can see the edge of the world, six miles out. A ship gets too close to it, right? Goes right over the edge. (laughs) All those people die. Happens far too often. Okay, so now you are believing this illusion of the existence of the edge of the world, right? You got a friend, let's say you go to the beach in LA, you got a friend there, he says, I got a sailboat, let's sail up to San Francisco. You're like, no way, man, we get six miles out, we fall off the edge of the world. You are making your decisions based on an illusion. Now, they come along, they grab you, they stuff you in the space shuttle, they blast you into orbit. You can see it's a sphere, they explain it's a sphere, they explain gravity to you, the whole works. You land, you get back there to the ocean, you look, it looks exactly like before. But now you don't conceive of the edge of the world six miles out. A ship gets too close to the edge of the world, you don't think that. The ship just simply sails over the horizon. You know nobody died. It's, it's perfectly safe. Your friend says, hey, let's sail up to, El- to San Francisco. Well, maybe you're turning down because you get seasick. But you're not going to say, no, we'll fall off the edge of the world. You're no longer conceiving of the edge of the world. You have shattered the illusion of the edge of the world. This is what the Buddha is telling us to do. We need to see that as much as it looks like there's a me here, It's actually an illusion. What's going on is, there's the universe, right? And the universe pokes up an eyeball, starts looking around. Actually, it's got two eyeballs. It's got not only electromagnetic sensing devices, it's got auditory sensing devices, and smelling sensing devices, and tasting sensing devices, and texture feeling sensing devices. It's it's called... A mobile sensing device. We call it a human being or something, right? (laughs) But this mobile sensing device can look down and see the sensing device. Just like you can look down and see, oh, there's a body here. The mobile sensing device has enough smarts in it that it can sense the smarts in the sensing device. In other words, you know that you have a mind, that you think, that you have emotions and so forth you have the capacity to sense the sensing device, both the physical aspect of it and the mental aspect of it. And because of this self-referencing that's going on, you postulate that there's an entity in here called me. This is what's happening. The moon ain't getting bigger when you run to the top of the hill or run to the bottom or anything. It just appears that way. What we need to do is break through this appearance of a solid self in here. Now, it's a difficult task. If it was easy, we'd all gotten enlightened a long time ago. What it takes is repeatedly examining, well, this mind-body process and the rest of the world around you. 
The Buddha talks about the necessity of leading a morally upright life so that when you come to your meditation cushion, you can concentrate your mind. In other words, you're not worried about the fact you've been out robbing banks and they're coming to get you. And then with a concentrated mind, you investigate the nature of reality to see what's really happening. It's usually translated to see things as they really are. But you're not the only supposed noun that turns out to be a verb. Pretty much the whole of the universe is a verb. This is tabling. This is building. Right? Those trees out there are treeing. It's all pretty much a dynamic process. So you start investigating yourself and the world around you and find all these dynamic processes. You are the result of lots of processes coming together. The fact that I'm speaking English to you is due to the fact that the British got to the eastern part of this continent and basically drove everybody else out and established their territory and made English the language for the eastern part of the continent and kept it that way as they pushed westwards. Well, they changed their name on the way. They were no longer English, they were Americans. Your language ability is dependent upon the fact you speak English rather than Pali or Latin or Spanish or whatever. And so you look at the world from an English language perspective. Who you are is dependent upon who your parents were, where you were raised, where you went to school, the type of food you've eaten. I mean, there are all these things that are coming together, these streams of dependently originated phenomena, all these massive things of cause and effect coming together and you're sitting at the intersection of them and calling it me. But it's a lot going into it. You are totally dependent on the air, not only to breathe it, but to provide the pressure, you know, 14 and a half pounds per square inch. If it disappears, you're going to have a very painful death. All the blood, all that oxygen and other gases in your blood would start boiling. It would be very unpleasant. You may think you end at your skin, but you're really dependent on being in this atmosphere to breathe it and hold you together. You're really dependent on the food. You're really dependent on the water. I mean, we are dependently originated phenomena, and there are all these streams coming together to make who we are. This is what the Buddha is pointing out with his dependent origination. Don't go looking for entities. Go looking for chains of cause and effect and realize that you are at the apex of many chains of cause and effect. There's another illusion that maybe can be helpful for you in trying to shatter this self-illusion. And that's time. What is time? My dad asked me this question when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I went, I mean, what is it? It's what clocks measure, right? But what are they measuring? And how come it only goes in one direction? You know, I can stand up and walk over here and walk back here. You know, I can go in the th first three dimensions, pretty much any direction. Well, it's a little harder to go up, but hey, I was up pretty high yesterday. I was 30,000 feet. So, 
why can't you go back in time? This is something that physicists discuss and philosophize over, and they got all sorts of theories and so forth. But it's a real simple explanation. Ain't no real such thing as time. It's an illusion. Time is an emergent property of change. Time arises when we try and measure change. And things don't unchange. I can pick up the cup, put it here, and then I can put it back, right? I unchanged it. But I didn't unchange the wind blowing or the cars going by on the freeway or the blood pumping in your veins and arteries, right? I just unchanged one little thing. For time to go backwards, you've got to unchange everything. And you can't do that. It Change just keeps happening. There's no unchange ever. I mean, basically, I changed this over to here, and then I further changed it back to where it was before. But that was really two changes as opposed to a positive change and a negative change. We have found it useful to identify the rate at which things change. Probably the first one we did was how fast the sun goes across the sky. We called it one day. Of course, eventually we realized the sun wasn't going across the sky, the earth was rotating. But there were other changes that appeared to be important, like the moon, and there were the changes of the seasons. That got to be really important once we started doing agriculture. Right? So, eventually we came up with this concept of time. And eventually the concept got so incredibly real that we believe there's a thing called time. If you go to your garden variety physicist, you know, you've got a bunch of them over here in the valley, across the valley, right? You just go find one of those physicists and tell them, ain't no such thing as time. They're going to argue with it. They believe that time is real. They're completely trapped in the illusion. So my challenge for you is, can you... Step outside of time. The best way I've found to do it is to go for a walk. Go someplace for a walk by yourself out in nature. And just walk along, noticing the changes that are happening. That bird is changing position in the sky. That sound arise in my hearing and then it ceased. My position on the path is changing. That pine tree fell over and it's changing as it rots into the desert. Just be in the present. Now you can't go thinking about the past or imagining the future because the past, that's, that's just your memories. We know how real they are. And the future, that's just your imagination. So you've got to have to stay right in the be here now and just walk along noticing change. You'll get lost a lot, just like when you're sitting and following your breath. You get lost. Okay, come back. Just go for a nice, you know, half-hour walk, trying to stay completely in the, well, we call it the present moment, but I think I would call it the ever-changing now. I mean, that's all it ever is, is now. If you had a watch that just said now, be always right. You wouldn't need a battery. Somebody asks you what time it is, you say, oh, it's now. Right? But if you had a watch like that, 
well, you might talk too long when you're giving a talk, so I guess it's a good thing they got one like this. And I can stop before we run out of time. Any questions or comments? see how difficult that is to do the same thing with the sense of self is really challenging we find it necessary to have a genuine illusion of self a conventional designation to me I mean yeah I know these illusions but I keep them in my pocket because conventionally it's useful the Buddha spoke at times of the conventions of the world and being able to see through them. The teaching on the two truths, which shows up actually later in Buddhism, puts it this way. There are conventional truths of the world that don't fully reveal what's going on. And there are sublime truths. To experience freedom, freedom from dukkha, it's necessary to intuit the sublime. That, yeah, this is a $20 bill. It's got Andrew Jackson on it and it's mine. All conventionally true. But it's not going to get me out of Dukkha. To get out of Dukkha, it's going to be necessary to use the conventions of the world to intuit the sublime. In other words, we need to see the finger that's pointing at the moon, but we need not to confuse the finger with the moon. And one of the things that's necessary to operate on the conventional level is a sense of self. If I'm eating a sandwich, it's very important I know the difference between me and the sandwich. I don't want to eat my fingers. Right? So we got to have that. We just not need to not be fooled by it. That's the trick. And yet the necessity of having that is so strong that people will identify with things that are not even worth identifying with. I'm a miserable person. I'm so sad. I mean, why would you identify with that? Well, because it makes it me. And so the trick is to realize, oh, there's a better way to be. But it's hard to get to and do the practice. Start moving in that direction. There's nothing else. We're doing a retreat now up at uh, Sangre de Cristo. Mm -hmm. Will you be giving Dharma talks and, or, or are these quintessential Dharma talks, your stories, they're going to be um, utilized also? Right. The Dharma talk I just gave is the kind of Dharma talk I like to give. I bet you do. Yeah. I'd uh, like to hear it too. Yeah. <laughs> Good. 
That's why I like to give it. People like stories. So yeah, I try and make the Dharma talks interesting and engaging. Uh, I'm trying to suck you in so I can throw something difficult at you without blowing you away. So yeah, I'll be giving Dharma talks like this, but I also give some stuff that's more traditional. Um, looking at, say, the Satipatthana Sutta and discussing the five aggregates in some detail. So, Are you receptive to people coming in the evening to hear the Dharma talks? It's fine with me. You just need to come quiet. Right? Uh, there'll be a sitting from 7 to 7.45 and a 15-minute walking period. So it would be good to come at that 15-minute walking period. And, you know, find an empty chair and sit in the back or bring your cushion and sit up front. Uh, I won't be giving all of the talks. I'm co-teaching with Lloyd Burton, who is the leader of the Denver Sangha. And so I'll be giving about half the talks. And no, I don't know which nights I'm going to be talking, which nights he's going to be talking. But uh, come and take your chances. He's good, too. I wouldn't be teaching with him if he wasn't. Remember, he's an illusion. Yeah. Right. Could you give another example of the sublime? Another example of the sublime. We seem to be all these independent nouns roaming around on the surface of the universe, but we are incredibly interconnected. We are dependent upon the people who purify the water that we get out of our taps. We're dependent on the people that grow the food and bring the food to where it's made up into a form that can be brought to the grocery store and the people at the grocery store that are selling us that. We're dependent upon the people that are providing the natural gas so you can cook that food. We're incredibly intertwined with each other. We're dependent upon each other because we're social creatures. I mean, how many of you have spent a week and never seen another soul. It's pretty rare that somebody does it. And if you do it, you've got to go a long ways away to be able to do it. Mostly, you're out checking with your friends. and you know They don't make movies where they don't have any people in them except occasional you know, animal stories and you can identify with the animals. But the amount of interconnection is far greater than it would seem just looking at The surface things, like the guy who keeps the electricity going and the guy who purifies the water, the interconnections run totally very deep. I mean, we're all interconnected right now because we're sharing this little talk on interconnectedness. So there's another one for you. Okay, we got one minute. That's time enough to do a very quick metta. So please put your attention on your breath for just a moment. Think about somebody you really care about. Someone towards whom you can easily generate a feeling of love. doesn't matter who. Your significant other, a child, dear friend, someone you admire, your cat. Get a sense of this being and then get a sense of what it feels like to love them.
Yeah, take this open-heartedness, this love that you have for someone easy to love and give it to yourself. You deserve love just as much as anyone else. Share this love with everybody in this room. After all, we're interconnected. That's what love is about. Honoring that interconnectedness. Share your love with the people in the neighborhood where you live. And with everybody in Santa Fe. Let your love spread out from here so that it covers the whole Four Corners area and then the whole continent. Open your heart wide enough so that you have love for every living being on this planet, humans and animals alike, rainforest and wheat fields. Now put your attention back on yourself. Back in your heart, which just generated a whole full room, a world full of love. You've got a world full of love there in your heart anytime you want it. say it makes good karma to share the Dharma, so I appreciate the opportunity.